Well, it's kind of nice to know that the calendar tells us it's spring and the weather outside tells us it's spring. So that's a pretty cool thing, isn't it? I'm hoping for a tea time sometime in April. So <laughs> that would be nice. And I don't mean black tea. <laughs> we are in the book of Romans. And today we'll be reading verses 17 through the end of this chapter, verse 29. I'm going to be actually uh, looking at uh, verses 17 through 24, so everything about circumcision we're going to have to hold off till <laughs> next, until May, but uh, it's something to look forward to. Uh, <laughs> So let me pray before I begin to read. We are thankful, Lord, this day for the sun and the blue sky and the weather that we're having today, Lord. I thank you that there's activity outside. People are itching to enjoy the weather and enjoy the environment and to enjoy getting out and not being cold and not having snow to walk around. Lord, we thank you for giving us the eyes to be able to see that you are very much a part of our life as you have uh, given us creation around us. We know that there are so many people who are thankful this morning for the same kinds of things, but yet not thankful to the same God that we are. And Lord, we are praising you for giving us the eyes to be able to see all of your handiwork, and yet, Lord, see the need for you in our life in a very personal way. And so, Lord, I pray as we read these words together, these words that you have breathed out to us that are useful for us, that are considered to be your words. Because, Lord, if they are not, then we are fools. And we are wasting our time and could certainly find something else to be entertained by. But Lord, we're not here to be entertained. We're here to hear your word. We're here to hear your voice. And so, Lord, I pray that you will do that for us today. You will be present. That, Lord, that those who are here today in this sanctuary, to those who are listening in, that, Father, that we all believe that this is your word, breathed out by you for our our spiritual growth and our understanding and which leads us to you Jesus and we pray that the spirit's work will be felt as we hear these discussions by your servant Paul 
that we pray, Lord, that again, this, this will be a time for our faith to grow, our knowledge and understanding of your word, and the desire to draw closer to you and be thankful for who you are. Because we can be thankful for creation, but that is not enough. We need to be thankful for you, Jesus, and we are. And we pray that your blessing would be upon our time, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to start reading verse 12 and uh, go down to verse 29. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of, tr of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely out one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Now last week we looked at some key verses, both from verses 1 through 11. And those were, he will render to each one according to his works. And I know last week probably there were some concepts that some people have never heard of before. You may have not heard of the covenant of works, and I tried to present 
what that was and how we looked at it in the Westminster Confession and explained how that was a covenant that God made with Adam at the garden. And, and if Adam had done this, then he would be rewarded for this. So it is a covenant of works, and that covenant of works still is ongoing till today. And what Paul is trying to tell both Jew and Gentile is that we are all lawbreakers because we are still held under the covenant of works, and all of us cannot fulfill that or be rewarded for ever obeying that. And then he says that in verse 11 that God shows no partiality, which means that God doesn't judge on a curve. God doesn't look at someone's face or someone's nationality or someone's whatever credentials and says, oh, wait a minute, I gotta, let me take out a different scale. And so this is where Paul is talking to the Jew and he's been talking to the Jew rather generally here, but still you know that it is because him the way he's talking about the covenant of works and he's talking about uh, the law and talking about obedience to the law. And primarily in the beginning, remember, he was talking overall to all humanity, but particularly speaking to the Gentiles over there because, again, there's a sort of imbalance of some sort of power or acknowledgement or feeling comfortable with Gentiles being around Jews and Jews being around Gentiles in this church. And evidently, Paul must have saw that there was a need to write it like this. And then he goes on and he talks about this, um, verse 15, that the Gentiles show that there's the work of the law or the requirement of the law that is written on their hearts because of their conscience. So they may not have the law, but they have a conscience. And where did that conscience come from? And we talked about, have you ever thought about where that conscience is? Where, why do people have a sense of right and wrong no matter where we are in the world? And it's not like I said about this concept of that children are, have a blank slate and we write things on their heart. God has all written, already written on their heart the requirements of the law. That there is a moral code that people live by. No matter what society, no matter what continent, no matter where we live, everybody has a conscience. Now, he says the, not only do the Jews have a conscience, but they also have a law. But he says God doesn't judge on partiality. He's going to judge you whether you have the law or whether you don't have the law. Because he says that you are the law, are law to yourself. And as he's going to condemn the Gentiles who don't have the law because even the conscience that they have, they can't even keep that straight. Because in situation ethics, right, and all relative... There are times when we break the law and we justify it. And there are times when we get angry when the person in front of us breaks the law. And where is that cop now? Where are they? Why are they just letting these people go while your speedometer says much higher than 65 or 55? 
And so that's the standard that Paul is writing to now both Jew and Gentile as they read this letter. But now Paul is getting to uh, something much more personal. He, did, he was quite personal in chapter 2, therefore you have no excuse, O man. And what he was saying there was that you don't like, you're applauding God's judgment upon these sins, this, this lack of morality in, in chapter 1. But he says, don't get too proud of yourself because you do the same thing. And then he goes into this general talking about God's judgment. And we looked at passages from, from uh, the Bible about that there is going to be a judgment. And when Jesus comes, he's going to judge. And, you know, there's a day for somebody to die. And then what happens? We face the judgment. But today he goes back and he becomes more personal because he seems to be pointing the finger in the chest of the person that he's talking to. Now, literally, he's not doing that, but he's focusing on this righteous Jew. Or he's just questioning the faith of the Jews that are there, making sure not, he's not, he doesn't know them, they've not been there, though he knows a lot of people there. He wants to make sure that when he comes and he arrives, that they know the standard and how he's going to love them and how he's going to preach to them and how he is going to impart some spiritual gift that God has given to them while he's longing to be with them and share in their spiritual gift to him, as he said in chapter 1. And I said there are times when Paul you know, he go, engages into this conversation with them, and he's, he, he, he's going to ask questions. He asks questions today. He's going to be asking lots of questions. In fact, if you go and count them, there's 58 questions in the book of Romans. And questions are good things. Men, mentioned that many times. Questions are very good things. Adam, where are you? <laughs> Who told you that? Right from the very beginning. You and I have sometimes gotten into conversation with people, and as I said, when we talk about certain categories or certain topics about faith, and we talk to a certain group of people, we can't anticipate what their questions are going to be or how they will object. So you prepare yourself because you've you know that these are the objections they're going to have. And sometimes we get to the point when we've been having these conversations that we no longer can be general, but then we become specific after hearing the person talk about their faith statement or the reason why God loves them or why God will hear their prayers or why they have some assurance or lack thereof about heaven. And so Paul now, as you can see, he now hones in on, the, on, the, on this person who now he calls a Jew, so we don't have to guess. He calls him a Jew and he looks him in the face and he says, if you call yourself a Jew, now he's not being, and I want you to read, read this, he's not being sarcastic. In fact, he's actually uh, 
enlisting for them some of the very good things about them. Listen to what he says. If you call yourself a Jew, that means the active words here, right? If you call yourself, if you, if, uh, you rely or rest upon the law and boast in or and legitimately boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. Now, all these things are really good in and in themselves. These are very good traits to have. These are good things to someone to come up to you. And I think Paul is listing them and saying these are very good things. We are to be a light to, uh, to the people in darkness. And we are to be a guide to the blind. That's what, that's in, in Isaiah chapter 42, that's what he says he wanted the Israelites to be. It wasn't about just to be one nation. He, they were supposed to be evangelists and missionaries and shedding that light of God's good news to the entire world and to be a, blind, a guide to those who do not see this. And so these are good, and they are right. He is right to say, yes, you've, you're absolutely right. This is who you are. And then this is all internal, right? This is stuff that this person or Jew or Jews or you or me or the person you're talking to believes about themselves. Because Paul is been, Paul's a Jew. He understands what it is to be a Jew. He totally understands what makes them tick. Like, I know what it is to be a Roman Catholic. I know what it is to be an Arminian, a person who is not Reformed. I know what it is not to be a person who baptizes babies, but a person who opposed the baptizing of babies. And I was a Congregationalist, which believed that we didn't have any other outside groups of people overseeing the church, that we were a group, that we were the local body, and that's where people guided the church. We don't need any outside influence. And as I've said jokingly, that it's for many years I was a closet Presbyterian, even as a, as a Congregationalist. And I saw myself and my theology and my understanding of God's Word brought me to be able to miraculously pass it through Presbytery and stand here today and have been for a while a pastor in this church. So I understand where people come from. I understand the arguments. I understand when they explain something where they're going to be. And I understand when I talk to somebody who has no faith, the objections that they're going to bring. Because you and I, we talk to people that, and we hear people have objections. And so when we take the time to talk to them, we understand where they're coming from. So they say, well, I've been a good person, and I've done this, and, or I've been a member of the church, and I go to Bible study, and my, my brother's a, a pastor or an elder in the church, and my wife has been playing the organ like my mom for 57 years, and, you know, and of course, I'm an altar boy, so I'm, I've certainly got you know, some sort of different channel to heaven than the rest of you guys. And as I said last week, I was a Roman Catholic and felt so sorry for my Protestant friends because they just didn't get it. 
So we do, we do talk to people, and they do tell us what their faith statement is, and Paul, being a Jew, totally understands why this person has this confidence. But notice, questions are going to come up. And so Paul questions their confidence. And that's what we are to do as apologists. As people who give a defense of the faith, as people who understand the gospel of Christ, the need for Christ, we press people with questions. Well, what do you mean by that? And that's what I've, I've, I've done this when I was at, uh, in seminary and led people to the Lord. Part of my evangelism class's duties was to ask people questions. And so I did that. And so I would ask people, do you know what, you know what it means to be born again? What do you think of the Bible? Who do you think Jesus is? I used to invite myself in their homes and, well, ask for an invitation and ask many people these questions. And it was wonderful to see how the Lord opened up doors for me to be able to come have them come to know Christ. And so this is this question now that you see where Paul is coming from. Before he gets to those questions, he says, this is, this is the activity that's going on in your heart. You call yourself, you rely upon, or you rest upon the law of God. You boast in, you have a, a pride about knowing who God is. Not a, not a sinful pride. And you know his will. And you can approve not only what's good, you not only know what's better, but you know excellence. Because God has given you what is excellent. That's the difficult thing, is it not? In life, we settle for good when we should be striving for excellence. I can remember, and I know I'm dating myself 100 years by now, but when Oliver North was testifying, he said the difficult thing was, was he said, I knew what was good, but what was best and so this is them, they should be commended for doing this and having this and, and, and having this guide in their life because you are instructed from the law. Well, that's great. They're not looking at the Wall Street Journal. They, don't have, they haven't tuned into Oprah's newest show to find out what we're supposed to think and what we're supposed to approve of. Or some podcast. And then now he says, if you are a guide, if you are an instructor, he says, if you, are, if you are these things, a light and a guide, excuse me, if you know these things, he says, now how do you share that light? And he goes, you do. You're an instructor to foolish people. And he goes, and I, don't, I think the word here is more lacking spiritual wisdom. They're not fools, but they just don't. Well, and the Bible does talk about people that lack spiritual wisdom, calls them fools, but... I don't want you to be in a pejorative way, but just a person that just doesn't have spiritual wisdom like you do. And a teacher of not children, yes, children, but people who are immature or, or young in their faith. And having the law, the embodiment, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So these are all very good things. But, he says, there's something wrong. 
He says, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? You may confess with your mouth, but do you believe in your heart? Chapter 10 coming. Jesus is, this is a, a tense moment. When we go to this place with people, it is, you, you, you go there with some fear and intrepidation. When you bring people to that point, when you challenge what they've just told you about their faith and about who they are. Because when you, you talk to them, it's personal. Their, their faith journey is personal. Who are you to tell me something different? And we read that Jesus did, right? He tells, I mean, he talks about the parable, and then we've read this about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? The, 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 there is this person who says, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look who I am. Look at, look at before me, Lord, before you, Lord. Look at, aren't you, aren't you so blessed to know who I am? Not like this tax collector. And the tax collector can't even pick his head up. Why? Because he knows he's not worthy when the Pharisee holds his head up high because he believes he is worthy. And then in that same chapter of Luke, chapter 18, Jesus talks about a rich young ruler. And he says in verse 18 of, at chapter 18 of Luke, he goes, And the ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? See, questions. Why do you call me good? What's, what's your standard of good? What's your standard of right and wrong? What's your standard to make moral decisions? No one is good except God alone. I don't know if I want you to call me good because I don't know if I like your goodness or your definition of goodness. It may not match my definition or God's definition of goodness, Jesus is saying. Only God is good. So notice how Jesus is saying, if you call me good, God is good, so what are you saying? He says, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, right? These are the, these are the, 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 the law, right? The Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments. And before there was the Ten Commandments, the Bible tells us, as we looked at last week, that God has written these mor this moral code upon the hearts of every human being that has descended from the first parents? And he says, yes, I have kept all of these things. This, he really believed it. The people that we talk to really believe it. Paul wants the people he's writing to to really believe it. I want you, I need to believe what God says. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Me? Lack something? You mean I'm not good enough? Sell all you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. But when he heard these things, this young man became so sad. The Bible says very sad. Why? Because he was extremely rich. 
Well, meaning that his idol, his idol was money. And he, by that walking away, he declared that he has broken all the commandments because he broke the very first one. But Jesus pressed him on that. Why? Why did Jesus? Why is Paul pressing these people? Because he wants them to understand the truth. He wants them to understand, like we looked at in chapter 1, that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. And why do you need the power of God? Because you need the power of God to change your heart, to change my heart, to convince me that this is God's word and that God is in control and God's a judge and we're going to stand before God and be judged by God's standard and not yours and not by anybody else's. That sounds like pure arrogance, does it not? And people don't like truth. And I think I've mentioned this once before. My teacher, my professor in seminary says, Jim, you're one of the most honest people I've ever met in my life, but you're going to have a trouble in church because people don't like honesty. That was encouraging to walk out of there and say, oh, wow, I'm going to go be a pastor. I've already got a bullseye on my back. And I'm not at that, always that honest because <laughs> I'm like what Paul says. Why? Why do you do that? I don't know. I, just, I do it because I'm a sinner. And that's where Paul is saying to these, these people, he's questioning them. He goes, you, you do break the law. What makes you think that you don't? We break God's moral code all the time. So he says, when you teach others, notice he goes right back to that conscience that's in the hearts of the Gentiles. He goes right back to that which was taught to Adam and Eve. He goes right back to that which was reestablished and written down on tablets in Exodus 19. He goes after the code that they live by. He goes after their law. He says, why you preach against stealing, why do you steal? Notice he went after the Eighth Commandment. And you say that you must not commit adultery, which is commandment number seven. But he says, do you commit adultery? But all you have to do is read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right? And you realize that he takes this statement and he says, well, you've heard it written, but let me just kind of open it up for you and what it all means. And when he does that, nobody survives stealing, adultery, murder, coveting. He says, you are poor idols. Do you rob temples? Which is which is the most boggling thing that, that seems to stump so many commentators. There are so many different kinds of answers to this because it really like goes, is this really a problem for the Jews? Some people think that uh, it's, it's, uh, them, it's more of a, a blanket statement, over, a, overarching statement talking about you know, robbing God in, in various ways. I look at it, and I think I take it a little bit more literally, and I, re, I go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, and it says, um, he says here, in verse 7 of chapter, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 7, he says this, 
verse 22, the Lord will give your God, the Lord your God will clear away the nations before you little by little, and you may, you may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild animals, wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into the great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give you their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is in them or on them and take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring in an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to, de to destruction like it. You shall not utter Utterly you shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. So, evidently, when they, they uh, destroyed and ran after temples, they took the idols in it and said, listen, this is awful, this is, this is paganism. Why don't we just take it, steal it, and just melt it down and make a profit out of it? That's what I think it means, which then would then be breaking another commandment, right? And then he goes on and he says this, You boast in the law. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. That's the key statement in this, in this passage. Verse 23. You who boast in the law Fail to glorify God. Now, is that something else we have heard before in this book? Remember the beginning of this, of chapter, I mean, the middle of chapter 1, where he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God. They did not glorify God. So by dishonoring God, by disobeying the law, you are dragging God's name through the mud. You are not telling God that you love him. I don't tell God that I love him when I do what I want to do. Even when I don't want to do it, and I do it. Even there are days when my sins smell like manure, and then those days when my can't, might smell like it is most of the time right now because of COVID, I can't smell it from a spiritual perspective. I walk right over the top of it and go and do what I want to do. And what am I doing? I'm breaking the third commandment. I'm misusing the name of God. How am I misusing it? Because I call myself a follower of Christ. And by calling myself a follower of Christ, I am just dissing Jesus. 
by doing what I want to do when I break the law. It may be swearing. It may be using God's name in an oath that's wrong, like I swear to God. Or when you, you know, stub your toe or you hit your head or do something and you, you come out and, and it's piteous how, how many verbs can come after Jesus' name in movies and outside. I mean, it's all, it makes me sick to even think that somebody can put some verbs next to Christ's name. But that's, those are the obvious things. Notice what he says here in verse 16. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secret of men's hearts, the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What Paul is doing now, he is saying, outwardly, I see this. I see that you're godly. I see who you are. I know what you profess. But do you possess? Are you in love with Jesus? Does he possess you? Do you possess him? Do you want him? And that's the question Paul wants them to know. He is not saying that everybody is doing some of these things all the time. He's just saying that we're sinners and we can't help but break the law because our moral code is just a moral code and there are times when we become God and want to do what we want to do. And by the end of today, you and I will have broken God's law many times. No matter how hard we sit here and we sing that Jesus is the only one for me, you and I will still do that. That doesn't, understanding, knowing that that doesn't change our position with God because of who Christ is. And you've heard me say you can't you cannot, God can't love you any more than he loves you now because he loves you in Christ. It's not your performance. Though he wants us to strive to be godly and to be holy, you and I can't lose our salvation because it's in Christ. But he's challenging these people. He wants them to understand this. Don't think that your confidence is founded and grounded in really anything solid, you should be concerned if that's who you are and you still sin. If you're basing your, your, like that young rich ruler, right? If you're basing it upon, I've kept all these things, Jesus says, my dear friend, you're, you're in serious trouble. So we need to ask ourselves this. Are we followers of Christ? Are we, are we trying to fulfill the covenant of works? Yes, we are saved by works, but it's not by your work or my work. It's by Christ's work. And so Paul is going deep, as I hope he goes to the people that are listening and, and hear that if you don't have that security, then you need to be questioning, what do you have? You may have a Bible in your house. Your name may be on this membership list. You may teach Sunday school. You may be the pastor. You may teach your kids and other people. But is that our assurance? Is that our confidence? And the answer is, it better not be. And so Paul digs into the secret places and says, you know, you Jew, and everybody who believes that same way and that mentality, be careful because woe to you if you believe that you are righteous. Right? Remember Jesus in, in, um, 
in chapter 25, 23 of Matthew, he goes off and he says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. Paul writes in here, he says, God is not worrying about just because you hear it. He wants to know if you hear it and you do it. That's who he blesses. But you need to do it for the right reasons, not because you're earning favor with God, but because you have already been blessed and found favor with God through Christ. And so Paul says, I mean, Jesus says many times, Woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow them to enter in to go in. I mean, to enter to go in. What he's talking about here in Romans and he's talking about here is that it's all about a religion. We need to make sure that we're just not following a form of Protestantism. That we're just not coming to church and going through the process. That you're really here because God wants you to be here. Because you don't want to break the fifth commandment. Fourth commandment. You don't want to do that. You want to be here because God has commanded that we keep the Sabbath holy. That we are here because here are the ordinary means of grace. Communion. Baptism. The Word of God. Prayer. Preaching. These are the things you and I need. We need a community. We cannot pick and choose these things. The Bible tells us we can't say, this is what I want to do on the Sabbath and go and do it without checking with the Word of God. Now, there's differences. But on the calendar, it says Sunday. And the Bible tells us that that's the day of the Lord. Or what do we do with our lives? Do we pick and choose what we want to believe or want to obey? That's where Paul's going to the secrets of men's heart and people's hearts. I appeal that to you. I'm not judging you. I'm just asking you to make sure you have your salvation in the right place so that when you come to see Jesus, you're going to say, Jesus, I was a member at first at Hope Church. I was a pastor at Hope Church and these other churches, and I've led people to Christ, and I've done these things, and he's going to look you in the face and say, sorry, I don't know who you are. What a devastating event to even think of woe to you scribes you evangelize all over the place and you make them worse woe to you blind guides woe to you hypocrites woe to you blind guides he says you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel you clean the outside of the cup but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence Woe to you, scribes, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. He's talking about formalism here. He's talking about going through religious activities. That's something, folks, even as Protestants, we can get stuck in. We look at the Roman Catholics, and we, get, and we, you know, we go through this mass, and we can go through all of the rituals, and we can genuflect and make the sign of the cross, and we take communion, and we do all the sacraments. And yes, it is wrong to believe that God's pleased with you if you jump through all the hoops. But the same thing can happen in Protestantism as well, and Presbyterianism as well, and Baptists, and any other kind of denomination. Don't get stuck in formalism. Don't let, don't let this become rote in your life. Seek 
Because God wants us to seek his des the desires of his heart. And so the, the, the commandment of misusing God's name is that when we carry that name and we live differently, or we turn a nose away from the church, or the way from the disciplines that God has, wants us to have, or loving one another, or putting ourselves out there for ministry, whether, as I said last week, standing up here and preaching, or cleaning the rooms, or working in the office, or doing things that nobody sees. And we do them because that's the ministry that God wants us to do to his glory. And that's what, that's what the problem here in Romans is. That what? We don't bring God glory. We give him thanks, nor do we honor him. So 121 says that, 123 of Romans, and God says, and Paul writes, and exchange the glory of God. So we have 123, then 223 says what? Like we're reading today, you who boast, dishonor the name of God by breaking God's law. And then what happens in 323? Let's turn to 323. We all know what that one is, right? For all have sinned and happens, what? It, we all fall short of the glory of God. It's pretty uncanny that they're all 23s, 123, 223, 323, but that's what it's there, about the glory of God. When I do what I want to do, when you do what you want to do, when you live your life according to way, the dictates of your own heart, if you want to go to the Lord on your own standards, is it bringing glory to God? The next step that we do, the next thing that comes out of our mouth, the next action that we take, it should be under the test of, is this going to bring glory to God? And folks, if we think about that, that's where, it all, that's where it's great. Because we would never think about that until God changed our hearts. You would never have any conflict in thinking that through your head saying, Does that, is God pleased with this? Before I became a Christian, my own religion was going through my head, and I made up my own rules. But I had a halo on my head. I looked nice. I dressed up. I went to church. I did all the things that looked good. I was so nice on the outside, but inside, dirty, sinful. For it is written, verse 24, the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. What does, the, what does the world around us here in Boston Spa think of Hope Church? I have no idea. I have no idea what they think of this place. I'm sure they've been told things. I'm sure the people have thanked us. I know they have. I don't know what, I don't even, I have no idea. I know what other places I've been to and what the community thought of our church. It was very vocalized throughout the community. I have no idea. But it's nice to know when people find us loving and find us kind and find us extending ourselves in, 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 in helping them out. And, and, and they know that we follow Christ. It's nice to know when people tell you that, you know, 
they, 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 they believe you're a Christian because of your, the, the values of your life and how you talk about Jesus? Sometimes we wonder, right? We wonder if, if we really are the witness that we should be. But if God's given us, as Ephesians tells us, if God has, has prepared us for works, God's going to bring those to us. As long as we step in and do them when God brings them, and he'll give you the ability, he'll give you the will to do those. Why is Paul doing this? In closing, let's look at chapter 9 of the book of Romans. Chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because the Jews did not pursue it by faith. As if it were based upon works. And they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers, this is why Paul is doing this. This is why we should do this. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That's what he's doing this. He, is, he wants his Jewish brothers and sisters to come to know Christ. And so he is confronting them. He is talking to them. He is doing it in a loving way, and sometimes he's doing it with a finger in their chest. And sometimes, Lord, folks, we need to do that, not in a condemning way, but we realize that we're pointing back at ourselves when we do that, and we need to look people in the face and say, do you really believe that? Is that what you really believe? It may offend them. But how do we know God is not going to use you to rock somebody's boat, to transform their life? To be the instrument of God's grace, to let the light go on and say, you know, I never thought about it that way. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness Right? That's what chapters 1 of, of uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17. The righteousness of God has, from heaven has been revealed, and his name is Jesus. And then we're going to turn, what, to chapter 3 when we get past this very, very dark and bad news that he keeps on rubbing our face in, and he's going to ask more questions, but next time we get together in May, he's going to talk about something that the Jews are totally proud of and base their salvation on is circumcision. But notice, as he says in, in chapter 3, verse 21, but now 
the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction It goes on. That's why Paul is doing it. That's why you and I are to do this. We have to understand who we are. We have to understand that, you know, question ourselves, have our confidence in Christ, not in our anything that we do. And when we do that, then we can talk to other people about their faith. And I pray that God opens up opportunities for you in your home or in your neighborhood or at your job that, that, that somebody will ask you a question. I did have somebody come up and ask me once, what must I do to be saved? I went, wait a minute, is there a camera somewhere? They did. I had a person I was working years ago when I was working at the state and I didn't have, we were living with my folks, I had no place to go. I went to the library and did my work. I had a woman tap me on the shoulder and she says, I see you're looking at your Bible and looking at all these books. Are you a Christian? Can you tell me? And I went, wow. In the public library, I wasn't looking for anybody but trying to be isolated and mind my own business. And this person interrupted me, wanted to know about God. How rude. I mean, I don't know where that woman went to. I don't know what happened, but we had a conversation. People will ask. Just pray that God will give you the opportunity and be able to give them the answer for the hope that lies within you. Make sure you know the gospel. It isn't about what you are pleased with. We're living in a society where people are talking about what you want. God doesn't care if you're happy. He doesn't want you to be happy in yourself. He wants you to be disrupted and disturbed in yourself until you find peace with him. And there's no guarantee that after you come to know him that your life is going to be full of happy moments all the time. That's the gospel. And that's what we need to tell folks when the opportunity arises. Not fill them with lies. Because we want to make them feel happy. Let's give them books that are all on Christian bookstores. Hand it to them. They'll be happy. But our job is not to make people happy. Our job is to tell them about Jesus. And we need to know who Jesus is. And we need to know the gospel. So, this is tough news. This is tough stuff. But Paul's got a plan. Paul's writing here. He's getting people to verse 31, chapter 3, verse 21. And he's still going to talk about sin and justification. But this is all dark because he needs to do this diatribe, it's called. He needs to be in people's faces and wonder what makes them tick. And so by him writing this, he is telling them what makes him tick. So I pray. Whatever God does with this message in your heart, I pray that he does. I pray that he uses it in your own little world that you live in. Because there are so many different applications that can take place. But we need to understand, do you know what it is to know the gospel? That's what we're going to talk about forever here at Hope Church, is that do you know the gospel? If somebody were to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, what is the gospel? You shouldn't hear go, oh no, that's a trick question. 
It should be able to fall off your lips because it is the hope that lies within you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are gracious and you are good and you are merciful and we're so happy for all of that. Father, I pray that as these words that Paul has written to us are your words, that, Father, we find encouragement in them, that we have had to ask ourselves these questions. We have come, had to come to terms with our faith and our faith statement, and why is it that we believe what we believe in if we believe, Lord, that we are good? If we believe that you are keeping track of our good works so that we hit a level and we reach that goal. Lord, I pray that this message will be something that disrupts that. And Father, I pray for those of us who love you and find these words an encouragement to us as we are reminded again of the clear gospel and our need for Christ in that you have shown the face of Christ to us and that you have changed our hearts that we ran to you, Jesus. And now we have an assurance of our salvation knowing that no matter what happens to us in our life, that we are secure in you. So thank you, Lord for the hope that you've given to us today. Lord, I pray for your work to work in us and through us by the power of the Spirit to bring some to know who Christ is. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.